Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat, a podcast about making work better. Hello, how you doing? This is Bruce Daisley. First, a shout out if you're interested in work or how it's evolving, how we can make more of it, then I'd strongly recommend you sign up for the newsletter of this podcast. You can find it by going to eatsleepworkrepeat.com. There's a link at the very top. There's also a link in the show notes here on your podcast app. So if you click that and sign up, And just to give you a sort of sense of what that's like, last week's newsletter, alongside a whole load of articles that you might have missed about work, remote work, motivation, all that stuff, there was a piece about computer games. Um, And I found myself sort of about a week ago reading something that's sort of become the Bible of the computer games design industry. So if you think about computer games, people play computer games for hours on end for no extrinsic reward, right? You're not paid to to play computer games. And other than what the game intrinsically offers them, there's nothing in it for people. It just means that the people who design computer games need to really understand human motivation to a really sophisticated level. And this book that I was reading is by a veteran games designer called Rafe Costa. It's become a classic. And I think the reason it's become so esteemed, it's been like in print for 15 years now, is because it's a really intriguing read that I think asks, for me, fascinating questions about humans and, and just what makes humans tick. So in the newsletter, I go through what I think is relevant for it. But I think the critical thing that I find is that if you swap the word games for the word work in his text, you you almost lose zero meaning. So Costa talks about the importance of, above all, of learning. One quote, he says, games that fail to exercise the brain become boring. Practice can keep a game fresh for a while. In many cases, we'll soon get bored and move on. And that, for me, seems really relevant to how we're now in a rhythm of very repetitive video calls. In games, they have this obsession with trying to make games fun. And I know at work, we sort of, we flinch from trying to make work fun. Where, Where fun doesn't necessarily mean, in games, putting a smile on your face, so much as giving you a meaningful challenge that is rewarding to fulfil. And it's interesting to me, I suspect a lot of bosses probably describe their own job as fun. But when it comes to describing their team's jobs, they aren't prepared to make them fun. Costa makes one other point that I think is vital for understanding motivation. He says, in games, boredom is the opposite of learning. And with games, learning is the drug. That is really fascinating for me. Um, I I remember one big firm I worked where talented people, like the most talented people you could ever imagine, joined, eager to change the world and really they quickly learned that the promotion system there only allowed them to progress one level every two years. A lot of companies have these level systems. And so this sort of dead-eyed acceptance dawned on people that their enthusiasm counted for nothing. It gradually sort of turned them into these vampiric waifs, performatively trying to do their job, but saddened that their own potential was atrophying away. And, you know, that really struck me. If learning is the drug, these were patients that were deprived of it. Anyway, uh, really intriguing. If you are interested in these things, the newsletter sort of goes into great depth what we can learn from computer games design. The book's called A Theory of Fun. I think there's a whole load we can learn that would help all of us make our jobs, our team jobs, a lot more rewarding. And if you do sign up for the newsletter, a whole load of people reply to me each week with comments, opinions. It's, you know, it's a great place to sort of join into a bit of a discussion. 
Right, today's episode is for anyone who is just curious about things, really. Work ultimately is a practice of the brain and how our brain processes and reacts to things. And today's episode is an exploration, a fascinating exploration of neuroscience. So I've got a friend who's studying neuroscience. And a couple of years ago, one of those chats, we were at a wedding somewhere and I was chatting to him and I said, who should I be reading in neuroscience? And he said the best voice in the field was a psychologist called Lisa Feldman Barrett. Sure enough, I looked her up and her book, How Emotions Are Made, is dazzling and brilliant. It covers themes of understanding emotions. One of the things that Lisa believes is that we don't arrive programmed on earth with emotions. We learn them along the way. And that means different cultures have different, slightly different takes on emotion. The more emotions we're taught to understand, the more we can feel. So, for example, in her book, she says, people who read fiction and learn to appreciate the nuance of different emotions, different feelings, end up being able to to achieve and reach a wider range of emotions. She's got a new book out now. How Emotions Are Made was the first book, several hundred pages long. Her new book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, is much shorter and much, much more accessible. If you're looking for a simple explainer about the brain, it's a really handy summary. I have to disclose, I way preferred the first book. It's a brilliant discussion. Along the way, you're going to discover that no, your dog isn't capable of feeling guilt. We talk about the test that was in a previous episode way, way, way ago about collective intelligence. And the test is called the reading the mind in the eyes test. So this was a test that was created by someone called Simon Baron Cohen. Yeah, I think he's his cousin. And this test was created for to measure autism, but it's actually been used since to measure people's ability to read and empathise emotions. So we talk about that test. If you search reading the mind in the eyes test, that test will come up and you can you can have a go, you can play around with it. Uh, we talk about the we talk about the death penalty actually because one of the things that lisa says is in the us juries are asked before they give the death penalty to see if the the person responsible felt remorse and she said it's we're incapable of judging if someone else is feeling remorse really fascinating we end up talking about elon musk and brain computer interfaces as well there's a whole load of stuff in this one here's my discussion with lisa feldman barrett Lisa, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really thrilled because I've been a fan of both your previous book, How Emotions Are Made, and your new book that we'll come on and t- talk about. Thank you for sort of taking the time to, uh, to chat to us. In the outset, I'm sort of really intrigued because a lot of the time I read your stuff, it challenges what I believe that I knew. So I thought I knew about how the brain worked. We've got this lizard brain that sort of <laughs> controls our urges. Then we develop this sort of mammalian, this emotional brain, our limbic brain that came next. And then we've got this sort of human brain that controls our logic in the sort of neocortex. I thought I understood all of that. And then you tell me that actually all of that is to some extent a bit of an illusion. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And in fact, the really funny thing about it is that scientists have known since the 1970s, since they've been able to really peer deep into the molecular structure of cells, that this idea of a layered brain, which in science is called the triune brain, scientists have known since the 1970s that this is false. That's right around the time when the triune brain became very, very popular in a book by Carl Sagan called the Dragons of Eden, with which won a Pulitzer Prize. So how do we know that's not the case? Why? Because we can we can use fRMI machines. We can use oh, brain no. machines. Oh, no, no, no. The evidence that brains did not evolve in layers, the evidence that the only animal that has a lizard brain really is a lizard, the evidence that really all mammalian brains have the same basic plan. In fact, probably all vertebrate brains have the same basic building plan, the same construction plan, really comes from the study of molecular genetics, peering deep into very, very, very microscopic aspects of the genes in cells. And so using these molecular tracing tools, it's possible to discover that 
really all brains, as I said, all brains that have ever been studied, which are primarily mammalian brains, so mammals, so, you know, cats and dogs and monkeys and, and so on. But also the molecular markers are there in vert other vertebrates like fish and birds and so on, that really all brains have the same kinds of neurons. These brains that we're talking about have the same kinds of neurons. They're just arranged slightly differently based on how long the time period of that of each developmental segment goes. If your brain develops for a little longer in one part of development, you end up getting a bigger structure. So as brains get bigger, they reorganize their cells. But the basically you have all the same neurons as a blood-sucking lamprey. There are really no differences. And so you don't have an inner lizard. You don't have a limbic system. You don't have some kind of inner beast that your very rational side is attempting to control. This idea that the brain is a battleground between rationality and emotion for control of your behavior goes all the way back to Plato. And it's a morality tale. It's a tale of how we understand how we're responsible for our own behavior, but it has no basis in biology at all. Well, I'm intrigued then there, because I'm sure there's something that you said in how emotions are made. You talked about how sometimes we project emotions onto animals and that animals really aren't capable of experiencing emotions. But if if our brains are the same as animals to some extent, then surely animals would be able to experience these these different changes in effect or these these different emotions, no? Well, I think that you're you're pointing to something important, but you're also confusing two things that many people confuse. And so I'll just take a minute to to try to explain. Why do we have a brain? What is a brain's most important job? A brain's most important job is not to think or see or feel. Your brain's most important job is to control your body, to run a budget for your body. Body budgeting, the scientific term, is called allostasis. The idea is that your brain is not budgeting money, it's budgeting internal resources like water and salt and glucose and hormones to keep you alive and well, so that you can, from biology standpoint, do your most important job, which is to propagate your genes <laughs> to the next generation. Mm. So this continuous budgeting process is largely invisible to you. It continues day and night, from the moment that you're born until the moment that you die inside your own body, and you're not wired to perceive it. So right now, it probably seems to you like you're just sitting calmly and listening to me talk, but you and every one of your listeners right now, and me included, have a drama of intense magnitudes unfolding inside uh, your body that you're largely unaware of. That ongoing drama is continually sending sense data to your brain about the changes in your body. This is true for all brains, okay? So all brains do body budgeting for an animal's body and the body sends sense data back to the brain about what's going on inside the body. If you were wired to perceive these sensations, you would never pay attention to anything outside your own skin ever again. And if you doubt me, just think about the last time you had GI distress and how it completely narrows your world to a very small or the last time you had flu or something, you know, you're, right. you're, you're really not tracking your body to the same degree as say vision, which is very, has a lot of detail and a lot of sharpness. And so evolution has given you kind of a workaround that hints when your body budget is generally in balance and when it's in the red. And that is what you might call feeling or mood. A scientist calls affect these are physical feelings of comfort, discomfort, feeling calm, feeling agitated. Mood or feeling is with you every moment of your life, whether you're emotional or not, and whether you're aware of it or not. And all brains in vertebrates, as far as we know, are wired for mood or for feeling of this sort, for affect, because it's a consequence of running a body budget. But what, what scientists call affect or, or mood or feeling is not emotion. Right. Um, they're really properties for humans 
affect is a property of consciousness. I'm not saying that animals are all necessarily aware of their feelings, although I think many of them are. Many of them have feelings of affect, feeling pleasure, pain, comfort, discomfort. But the point is that humans have the capacity to create emotion out of these feelings, not all the time, but a lot of times. Emotion is more complex than feeling. It's a way that a human brain explains or makes sense of sensory changes in the body in relation to what's going on around you in the world. So a dog can feel content, but we shouldn't project onto the dog that the dog's in a fond state of happiness. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes. And it really, what it really comes down to is there's a lot to unpack in that statement that we haven't talked about that's in the book. But the general idea is that your brain is constructing concepts to make sense of knowledge, to make sense of the sensations from your body as they occur in a particular situation. And a dog's brain also can make concepts. The question is, can a dog's brain make the kind of concepts that a human brain can make? And the answer is probably not. Humans, because by virtue of of how our brains are wired, probably have the capacity to make many, many more kinds of concepts and concepts that have some degree of abstraction. Emotion concepts are these kinds of concepts. So a dog will feel pleasantness, unpleasantness. Your dog might be attached to you. Your dog might be agitated or calm. Um, But it's very unlikely from your dog's perspective that your dog feels guilt or shame or anger or fear. Although you perceive your dog that way because you, your brain has the capacity to make those concepts. So when we see our dog has eaten some food that it's not meant to and and it's looking as we might describe it to others, look how ashamed she is. In fact, this is us projecting that. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's projecting. I would say, well, first of all, there's evidence to show that dogs themselves, their own brains don't construct instances of guilt. When we look at a dog's movements in relation to the context, we make an inference about what the dog's state is. And that inference that we make is just the same as the kind of inference that we make about each other. We don't read each other's emotions either. We look at other people, we listen to them, we look at their movements, their facial movements, their body movements, we listen to how their voice sounds, to what they say, and so on. And we make an inference based on what we know we make an inference about what emotional state that person is in. We do this with each other all the time. We do it with our pets. We do it with our plants. We do it with our cars. Humans have the capacity to make inferences about mental life and impose them on many, many, many things, including other humans and dogs. So so one of the ways that you got into this was that you found yourself looking at, I guess, earlier in your academic career, you're looking at to try and understand the universality of emotions across different cultures and understanding that we would imagine superficially that every culture smiles, every culture blushes, every culture reacts in the same way when they're angry. You discovered that that idea that these are universal, hardwired response to things is an illusion. In fact, there's no such thing as hardwiring when it comes to the brain with a lot of the things that we do. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, the word hardwired is really tricky when it comes to the brain because, of course, your brain is made up of cells, uh, some of which are called neurons. And these neurons do have a long wire attached to them called an axon. But neurons, as my engineering colleagues like to remind me, neurons are not soldered together. When a neuron fires, a pulse, an electrical pulse propagates down the axon to the end where there's a clef, a space, and it releases chemicals. And then the other neurons pick up those chemicals and then they fire and so on and so forth. So the way to think about it is that your brain doesn't really have hard wiring. What it has is the capacity to reinstate or re-implement patterns of activity with the wiring and the chemicals that it uses. So your neurons, which have wires, are embedded in a, you know, a chemical bath, basically. And they, those chemicals 
change the ease with which neurons speak to each other. And so what your brain is doing is conjuring trillions of patterns. And these patterns, every time you have a memory, for example, your brain doesn't store memory. It doesn't retrieve a memory. It remakes a memory. When it when you remember something, your brain is re-implementing a pattern. It's right. reinstating okay. it. So first of all, your brain isn't really hard. Nothing is really hardwired. Second of all, much of the wiring that is there is very influenced by development. You know, an infant brain is not a miniature adult brain. It's in a brain that is waiting for a set of wiring instructions from the world. And so a lot of the things that we think of as hardwired are patterns that the brain makes easily because it's been making them for decades over and over and over again. Little brains wire themselves to their world, their physical world, and they're also their social world, the world that we create for them. Part of what they learn is they learn how to, they learn the emotion concepts for their culture and how to make meaning of their physical states in a way that makes sense in their culture. And so before we even get to cultural differences, I think it's important to realize that people perceive emotion in each other with great confidence, which leads us to believe that, you know, we're reading emotion in other people's faces or in their voices or so on. But body movements and facial movements are not a language to be read like words on a page. No one has body language. People make bodily movements, facial movements, and other people perceive, they make inferences, they guess at the emotional meaning of those movements. And so when you're angry, the data show in, the, in Western cultures, people scowl about 30% of the time. That's more than chance. It's more than what would happen randomly. But that means 70% of the time when people are angry, and this is within our own culture, they don't scowl. They do other things with their face. They might smile. They might laugh. They might cry. Uh, they might have a stone, you know, like a stone still face. Yeah. And people also scowl when they're not angry. They scowl when they're confused. They scowl when they're concentrating really hard. Uh, they scowl the signal that someone told a really bad joke. From a scientific standpoint, we would say scowling is one expression of emotion, but it is not the expression of emotion. It's a stereotype, a Western stereotype of the expression of anger, because most of the time people are not scowling when they're angry, they're doing something else. When's the last time you saw someone win an Academy Award for scowling when they're angry? It's just not something that people do very often. And we think of it actually as sort of cartoonish. And that's because it is. It's a stereotype. Even before we talk about other cultures, we can say, in our own culture, variation is the norm. When it comes to expressing emotion, you don't always smile when you're happy and you often smile when you're not happy. You don't always frown when you're sad and you often frown when you're not sad and so on. So human brains are pretty good at making guesses about what smiles and scowls and frowns mean, emotionally speaking, in context. And the guesses are very different in, in other cultures. I guess that brings us on to one of the, the big things that I've learned from, from both of your books, which is effectively your brain spends most of its time predicting what's going to happen. It, it's running simulations, predicting different circumstances, and it's just trying to sort of second guess what decisions it will make based on what happens. Is, have I expressed that correctly? I was just, I was really taken with this idea that the brain is constantly running simulations. Why would it yeah. do that? First of all, everything we know about how brains work from, you know, the anatomy of how they're set up to the way neurons process signals, you know, all the different types of scientific evidence really point to the idea that brains are predicting, they're not reacting to the world. So to you and to me and to everyone else, it feels as if we're reacting to things that happen. But actually, our brains are constantly predicting. If we were able to stop the world right now, uh, yeah. your brain would be taking stock of what just happened in your body and what just happened in the world. And it would be making a prediction about what's going to happen next. And then those predictions are not some kind of abstract thing. They're actually the brain changing 
the pattern of firing of its own neurons before the sense data arrive. And then when the sense data arrives, the brain can check its guess, check its prediction to see whether it was correct or not. And if it's correct, then your actions just proceed very automatically. And the reason for doing this is that it's metabolically efficient. It's in a big brain like ours, and in fact, in all brains, but particularly in big brains like ours, it's very metabolically efficient to predict and correct rather than to react. And in fact, there are non-neurotypical brains, brains in people who are struggling with autism, for example, look more like reactive brains. Brains that are neurotypical are, are predictive. And to give you an example of what I mean by simulation, and a really easy thing for your listeners to do would be to keep their eyes open, look at something in, in the world, keep your eyes open, and in your mind's eye, imagine a red apple of the kind that you would eat, or like a red apple that you would eat. Can you, in your mind's eye, imagine a, a red apple? Can you see it, you know, kind of like a fuzzy, like in a fuzzy way? Yeah. Yeah. And can you imagine what it feels like to hold that apple in your hand? Mm -hmm. And maybe to um, what it would sound like, the crunch that you would hear if you took a bite of that apple, and what the taste would be like. If you can do any of these things, hear the crunch, taste the sweet tartness, uh, and so on, see the apple, then you can have these experiences because your brain is actually changing the firing of its own visual neurons, its own auditory neurons, the neurons that are important for seeing and hearing and tasting and so on. Your brain's changing the firing of its own neurons in the absence of an apple just by me saying the word apple. Mm. And those are essentially predictions. And so if I were in front of you and I actually pulled out an apple, then your brain would compare the sense data from the apple to its conjurings and off you would go. It's interesting what you say there about, um, I, I forget the word you use, but atypical or untypical brains and, and they don't work in the same way. So I was I was thinking that, I guess, some of the challenges that when people have mental health issues, they probably predict, they make predictions about what other people's actions are going to be that are inaccurate, maybe informed by a sort of different perspective in their head. But you said that also extends to people who are on the autistic spectrum. Right. So autism is considered to be a disorder of prediction. People who are on the spectrum and who struggle, their brains actually aren't wired in a way that makes prediction very easy. And as a consequence, they are often what we call experientially blind, meaning that they, their brain have a hard time guessing what particular actions mean, what particular sensations mean. Most disorders have a problem with prediction. So for example, depression is, you can think of, there are many ways many paths to develop depression, but you can think about depression as basically like a, a locked-in brain, a brain that is using its own internal model. It's making its own predictions based on past experience. It's not correcting those predictions with reference to the world. Let's say, uh, you know, for to use our apple example, let's say I pulled out an apple and it was a Granny Smith apple, not red, and, and the bite, the taste would be maybe a little more tart, there's sense data there that doesn't match your prediction. And when the sense data doesn't match your prediction, doesn't match your guess, your brain has a couple of choices. One thing it can do is it can correct your prediction. It can take in the information that you didn't predict and learn it so that you can predict better next time. So that's what we call taking in prediction error. We call it learning. That's what learning is, basically. Another possibility is your brain can say, metaphorically, I don't care about the prediction error. It turns out learning prediction error is expensive, metabolically speaking. So sometimes your brain won't learn it. It will just go with its prediction. Like, for example, if you're making apple pie, it doesn't really matter whether you're using, well, a baker would tell you it matters that you're whether you're using um you know, Granny Smith or, or Cortland apples. But really, you just want an yeah. apple that has some degree of substance to it that's not going to turn to mush. And so it might not be important to learn the difference. 
So your brain's always making estimates about whether it needs to learn something or not, or whether it can treat the sense data as that it didn't predict as noise or whether it has to learn it. You can think about depression as kind of a body budget that is running a major deficit. And so what do you do in your actual budget when you're running a deficit? You stop spending, right? You slow your spending. What are the two most expensive things a brain can do? It can learn and it can move your body. So if it's going to stop spending or really reduce its spending, what's it going to do? It's going to make, you're going to feel fatigue. So you're not going to move as much and you're not going to learn as much. You're going to be kind of locked into your own beliefs, your own internal model, and you're not going to be updating or learning as much in and coordinating uh, to the environment that you're in. Anxiety is a, an increase in an arousal that comes, an increase in arousal that comes from not predicting well, um, being experientially blind, being unable to predict or be unable to make sense of sense data or having difficulty figuring out which prediction to go with. Even physical illnesses like chronic pain and diabetes and heart disease and so on can be understood in terms of problems uh, of a predicting brain. Tell me this, if there's no such thing as absolute universal emotions in others, are you worried that some of this science is appropriated? I mean, I'm just thinking of a couple of examples. Firstly, I used someone's recruitment tool last year. They were sort of demonstrating it to me. And one of the stages in it was um, it borrowed from the Simon Baron Cohen reading the mind in the eyes experiment, which I'm, I'm sure you know, which is it gives you 40 photographs from I think a vanity fair in the 1980s and it asks you to say what the emotions that the people in them were feeling and that test you'll you'll know is used to diagnose autism but this recruitment tool had taken some of the work that I think researchers like Anita Williams Woolley have done saying that that is a good predictor of someone's collective intelligence I guess there's a few steps along the way there it's saying as part of the recruitment tool can you read people's emotions and if you you can, you would be a better candidate. But what you're saying to me to some extent, and what you've said, I think in one of the TED Talks I saw, where you said, you know, when we when we look at a defendant in the dock in a court case, we can't we cannot tell whether they are feeling remorseful or not. We are incapable of reading emotion in in that objective way. Are you worried then, firstly, that some of this science doesn't seem consistent with your learning? And secondly, that it could be misappropriated in these ways? Well, yes. Let me first say the mind in the eyes task is um, you're, when anyone uses that to make predictions about someone's actions in real life, they are making a very big mistake. And this is a mistake that has been known for about 30 years, although for some reason people keep ignoring it. And that's the following. In the mind and the eyes task, or really any task on emotion that the majority of the emotion recognition tasks, as they're called, that have been published in the last 30 years, 40 years, they have a particular method they use. So here's the method. You show someone a set of eyes, or you show them a face, and you give them a set of words, and you ask them to pick the word that matches the face. So I might show you, let's say, a scowling face and give you six words and you know, your task is to pick the word that matches the face, so you'd pick anger. In the mind and the eyes task, it's very similar, except I think you're given four words. And people do a pretty good job, on average. Neurotypical brains do a pretty good job. The thing is, though, if I remove those words, and I just give you the eyes, and I say, how does this person feel? Everybody's performance tanks. And actually, we've published evidence on this, using the mind and the eyes task, actually, in addition to lots of evidence that's been published on emotion perception tasks. In real life, people don't make a face, pose it in a very stereotypic way, and then you give them a set of six words and they have to pick the word that matches the face. No, in everyday life, faces are continually moving. Eyes uh, are continually um, moving. The sh- you know, your gaze shifts, you show more sclera, yeah. you show less sclera, more white, less white, what have you. And what the brain is doing, what your brain is doing, what my brain is doing, what everybody's brain is doing, is making a guess. Based on what they know and what is going on in the current situation, they're making a guess. Some people guess better. Some people guess worse. You're guessing 
what the person is going to do next based on what you know. And some people guess better, some people guess worse, but that guessing is not well predicted by those tests because those tests artificially, they artificially narrow the options down to four or six choices, which is not what happens in real life. And so there is a major problem here. And the major problem is that the findings don't predict well in real life. And moreover, I would say the experiments that are run usually are using highly stereotyped expressions. These are yeah. expressions that we believe are the expressions of these emotions, but actually in real life, variation is the norm. So it's not the case that facial movements are meaningless. Facial movements aren't random. Eye movements aren't random. They're meaningful. You just have to figure out what they mean. And your brain is doing a very complicated calculus to do this. But I think, you know, you brought up remorse and I think remorse is a really good example. In a courtroom in the United States, I'm not sure how it is in the UK, but in the United, well, actually you don't have capital punishment in the UK, right? Um, no, but we in don't. the United States, yeah, well, we could talk about how civilized that is relative to the U.S. But anyways, in the U.S., I just took off my uh, scientific lab coat there for a minute and let my own personal <laughs> feelings show. So sorry about that. But in the U.S., there is uh, capital punishment. And the research shows that the difference for a jury, in the jury decides what, what the sentence will be. And in capital cases, as they're called, the distinction between giving someone life in prison versus giving them the death penalty really rests on whether or not the jury believes the defendant to be remorseful. And right. what they're using, typically juries, they have an expectation of a typical American expression of remorse on the assumption that this is universal, right? So they're expecting to see, you know, maybe tears and a gut-wrenching kind of apology. And this is the sort of stereotype of, a, of American display of, of remorse. But the fact is that someone can express remorse in, in many different ways. And there are cultural, other cultural stereotypes for other cultural norms for expressing remorse. And if you happen to be from one of those cultures, then it's possible that the jury might not perceive remorse in you and you may end up getting the death penalty being awarded to you. And that actually has happened on, in a number of cases. And it's a problem because in the United States, in order to get a fair trial, according to the Supreme Court, the jurors have to be able to know the heart and mind of the defendant. And the fact hmm. is, no human can know the mind and heart of any other human. All we're doing is guessing. And sometimes we guess well, and sometimes we don't. And so it's better to be humble about our guessing, particularly when someone's life depends on the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. That's intriguing for me. I think in your first book, you, you give a, a lot of photographs of sports stars and you know and it's actually incredibly difficult to read whether they're angry or, or in a state of delight and these things that we consider to be almost very obvious are, are actually never as obvious as, as we we might imagine more with my discussion with lisa Feldman barrett after this hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now, more of my discussion with the author of Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, Lisa Feldman Barrett. Tell me this, as someone who's sort of studied brains and, and maybe is trying to understand the way that these things work, when you hear someone like Elon Musk talking about brain technology interfaces, do you get excited? Do you roll your eyes? Do you believe it's possible? What are your takes on things like that? I'm not going to comment on exactly what Elon Musk says, but I will say that I do think that brain-machine interfaces are extremely interesting. I Mm. work with several engineers who are involved in attempting to build technology that allows people to control machines and so on with their brains. And I think it's very cool technology. It's very, and it's very cool from a scientific standpoint because we can learn a lot about how brains work based on the kind of effective technology that we can build. The only thing I'll say is that in science, particularly when it comes to human outcomes, it's important to be humble and curious and to not overclaim. So it's very different, right, when a researcher is um, announcing a discovery versus when uh, a company is announcing a discovery, right? Because companies are trying to make money from Mm. their work, and researchers typically don't. I mean, there are obviously some researchers who work for industry, and there are some researchers who patent their work or who try to sell it to industry. But my point is that innovations that are done for research purposes, for the purpose of learning how something works, has different constraints and concerns than research that is done for the purposes of selling people things. When you're trying to sell people things and make a buck, it's very easy to get into the situation of overclaiming what you can do. Got it. Which is which Got is it. what, you know, emotion recognition systems do currently for the most part. Companies are are overclaiming what they can do. Yeah, because I was really struck. I remember reading something a few years ago about a sort of field that someone was trying to to make claims about of neuroeconomics. Neuroeconomics, the principle behind neuroeconomics was that you could spot the cells in a brain that were making a decision down to the, the sort of the neuron level. And you could, across multiple people, you could track these things. And of course, reading your work, it's pretty clear that there's no such thing as a single cell for various things. And, and certainly there's, n- there's not a single cell for brain cell for, for say, the same thing across different people, that our brains are basically formed uniquely and individually. And so, you know, it, it's, it strikes me that there's a lot of casual use of these terms to come up with invented areas. And so I was just intrigued whether you, you believed that technology brain interfaces would have the same impact. I have to say, as a scientist, I try hard not to be guided by belief, and I try to be guided by data. The data that I report, you know, that I describe in how emotions are made, don't just come from my lab. They come from hundreds of labs across the world. The point Mm -hmm. is that when you have an experience or your brain is controlling your actions, it's really a whole brain event. And the best that any scientist can do at the moment is, even in in a non-human animal, is record you know, a couple of hundred neurons at a time. You know, a human brain has something like 128 billion neurons if you count all the parts, including the cerebellum, which people often leave out, which is why I'm saying it. Oftentimes you see statistics like, you know, 85 or so billion Mm -hmm. neurons. But actually, if you count all the parts, it's about 128, give or take, billion neurons. That's a lot of neurons. Nobody can measure thing, you know, individual neurons at that scale. Um, So, but, but what we can see by even measuring just tens of hundreds of neurons is that there's much more variation even within a single brain. You don't even have to go talk, be talking about across brains. So yes, there's great promise in computer brain interface, great promise for understanding how brains work and to control bodies and, um, and maybe also to get certain jobs done. We have to be humble and we have to be curious particularly when we are asking questions that can influence 
people's outcomes. If your right. business is to um, sell something to someone, you know, let's say you have a emotion recognition business. So you're trying to predict people's emotions by their facial movements. And, you know, you can predict, say, the best evidence that's available would be that you could predict maybe 30% of the time. That's better than chance. And so if your business is to, to get people to buy stuff, doesn't really matter if you're wrong. But if your business is trying to read emotions for the purposes of deciding who gets education or who gets a job or whether somebody is guilty of a crime or not, you know, or whether somebody is sick and needs treatment or not, these kinds of decisions have tremendous impact on people's outcomes. And frankly, mm. a 30% accuracy rate is unacceptable. Would you want yeah. your outcomes or the outcomes of your children being decided by a system that could be wrong 70% of the time? Yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah, exactly. When you look forwards, I guess, last question, what, what are you most excited about, either in terms of how technology will enable us to understand different things or what you believe discoveries we need, still need to crack? What are you most excited about? Well, that's really hard to answer because there are many, many things to be excited about. There are still some really basic things that we don't understand, uh, like how exactly, how does your brain, your brain, you know, as I said before, your brains evolved to control bodies. They didn't evolve to think or see or feel. You right. think and feel and see in the service of controlling your body. That's not how it feels to you, but that's what your brain is doing. But the fact is, we don't really understand how your sensory experiences of your body and of the world really help to guide that body budget or control that body budget. If we did, we probably could cure all kinds of illnesses. Mm. So that's really exciting to me. And it's really exciting to me to learn, as I have recently, that a lot of the problems that people have both mentally and physically, actually stem from metabolic problems, from problems. A lot of the things that we think of as mental difficulties actually stem from a compromised um, body budget, from uh, problems with metabolism. And so that's really exciting, actually. Go on. What, what, would that, what would that look like? Well, here's the thing. Some of the body budgeting problems that occur, for example, in depression, also occur in heart disease and in chronic pain and in Alzheimer's disease and in Parkinson's disease. Hmm. I'm, not, I'm not saying that it's, it's all identical. I'm saying that one thing that is important in all of these diseases is that your body budget is, is running a deficit. I mean, what's really interesting to me is that if we were going to design a system that really screwed up a human body budget, metabolic budget, it would be the world that we currently live in. Hmm. You know, we don't get enough sleep. We don't eat healthfully. We don't exercise enough. Um, we're on social media all the time, which is inherently, you know, ambiguous and ambigu social ambiguity is really, really hard, metabolically speaking, for a human nervous system. Um, and so, you know, all of these things are basically making withdrawals, met metaphorically speaking, out of your body budget, leaving you uh, with a deficit. And what happens when you run a deficit? Well, you feel like crap, first of all. And so affectively, you feel horrible. And what do you do with that feeling? Usually you make a negative emotion out of it. But also, when you're running a deficit, it, it's hard for you to learn. It's hard for you to empathize with other people. It's hard for you to be innovative. It's hard for you to take someone else's perspective. The way to think about it is that the, the metabolic tax that you pay is not a big tax each time. It's a little tax, just a little bit of a tax each time, which adds up over a long period to an illness, to a metabolic illness, like right. depression or you know, over a longer time, heart disease, or over a really longer time, Alzheimer's disease. I think the really... Um, exciting thing about this discovery is that we know how to fix it in that we understand, once we understand how it works a little better, we will understand how to be architects um, of our lives in a way that can optimize what we experience and optimize 
our performance on the job and also at home. So for example, evidence-based management research, this is, by the way, courtesy of my friend Andrew Mawson, who studies what factors contribute to workplace performance. It's all the things that you know enhance someone's body budget. So yeah. allowing employees and cultivating an environment full of trust and um, you know opportunities to rest and you know, exercise and actually enhances performance in this really surprising way. And it's because, you know, when you have a balanced body budget, you have excess resources that you can invest in other things like being innovative or helping other people to be innovative and so on and so forth. Lisa, thank you so much. I've, I find your work, whether it's watching your clips on YouTube or, or your reading, um, to be so generous in terms of explaining the expertise for people who maybe are outside the field. So I'm so grateful for you taking the time here to, to do a little further of that. Thank you. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you to Lisa. Like I say, her new book is out right now and How Emotions Are Made is still out. Good audio book that. I think I think that's one of the ones I did in hardback and in audio. The next two episodes are going to be very different in contrast. One is a visit to see what works like as a spy when I went to visit GCHQ. And then there's going to be a unique conversation with someone, uh, someone who got in touch with me actually, and said that stress at work and the impact of work was such, it drove him right to the edge. And he found himself ready to consider suicide. I think, you know, we often think about mental health and the impact on work but that's it's just such a powerful discussion i'm so grateful for anyone who listens thank you for listening thank you for all the feedback you give i've been bruce daisley see you next time hey it's Paige desorbo from giggly squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to quince I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.